0: Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Good morning, and welcome to service this morning. And this morning, we want to continue in the book of Romans, chapter 2. But before we do that, as most of you may or may not know, I used to coach high school water polo and swimming. And when I first began doing this, the coaching portion of it, I would say I wasn't really very good at what I did, but I was fortunate to have some experienced friends and parents who helped me to become a better coach over those years. The things that I learned over that time, um, I tried to instill in some of my athletes so that when they moved on, they could also pass along that uh, wealth of knowledge to others. And now, usually... This is a very rewarding experience, uh, especially when these less experienced individuals are eager to learn and improve their skills, and they actually make an effort to apply what it is they are being taught. Uh, But unfortunately, there are always um, a few coaches and those individuals who are not nearly as good as they think they are, And who, therefore, seem to think that they really don't need any help. Now, I often refer to these coaches as yeah, but coaches. Because every time you make a suggestion, uh, they reply something like this. Yeah, I knew that, but... You, you, You know where I'm going with that. See, they proceed to give some excuse as to why they aren't doing what they claim to know and what they are supposed to do. And those coaches never get any better because they never change what they are doing as a result of what they are learning. Now this morning, and as we continue in our study of Romans, Paul is going to address what I call yeah, but Christians. And those are those who claim to know God and his truth but who always seem to have trouble living according to what they claim they know. So go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 2 and follow along as I read in beginning uh, in verse 17. Romans chapter 2, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent... "...because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal?" I believe Paul began speaking primarily to the Jews in the church all the way back in verse one of chapter two. This is the first time he addresses them by name. So in other words, he's calling them out personally. He's making this personal for them. It's not just a broad statement here. He is actually specifically focusing his energy into specific people. So Before we go any further, I think it's important to also point out that Paul is not being anti-Semitic here, okay? Because it it, kind of gives that impression here. But know that he is not being anti-Semitic here. He himself is a Jew, okay? And I think it's pretty obvious here that he is being quite direct with his fellow Jews for the reason of he has a genuine love for them. Okay? Paul is not trying to single out the Jews as being uniquely deficient, but rather he wants to make it clear that processing God's law and a higher moral standard than the Gentiles did not exclude the Jews from needing to personally respond to the gospel by faith in Jesus alone. And here is the message that Paul has for his fellow Jews and also for us as well. Talking without walking leads to mocking and blocking. Let me explain this. The focal point of this passage this morning is found in verses 21 and 22. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? In those two verses, Paul accuses the Jews of living a life in which their walk didn't match their talk. Or to use another often used phrase, they didn't practice what they preached. And then he asks a series of three questions what are intended to help them see that they do, in fact, live that way. Obviously, not every Jew steals and not every Jew commits adultery or robs pagan temples or their idols. But the Paul makes is that those sins are prevalent in their culture and that all of them are guilty of not practicing what they preach in some area of their lives, which is true for us. Do we not practice everything we preach? I think we know the answer to that question. So therefore, all of them need to make the gospel theirs personally. And we discussed that a little bit last week. The main idea is book ended on one end by verses 17 through 20, which shows the reasons the Jews had to come to live like that. And on the other end of the verses 23 and 24, that described the result of that kind of life. And it goes without saying it's referring to us as well. Because the Jews to whom Paul is writing here have so much in common with those who I am calling, yeah, but Christians... Let's take this passage and make it really relevant for all of us by seeing how it applies in our culture today. Now, in order to do that, we'll address two important questions. The first question is, how does someone become a yeah-but-Christian? And then the second question would be, why is that such a bad thing? So let's address, how does someone become a yeah-but-Christian? Number one, they do this by seeking security in the wrong places. Rather than finding security in the grace of God that is offered by the gospel, these people settle for three things that can never provide lasting security. First is their heritage. Notice that Paul addresses this section to one who calls himself a Jew as opposed to the one who is genuinely a Jew. That distinction might seem like splitting hairs, but is actually quite important. If Paul were writing this to the church in the United States in the 21st century, I think he would have written something like this. But if you call yourself a Christian, how often do you hear, but if you call yourself a Christian, there is strong implications there. In other words, we're being called out. If you are a Christian, you should blank, 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 blank. We hear this statement over and over and over and over again. Why? Because the unchurched would love nothing more than to call out a hypocrite. They want to justify their means of how they live. So how do they do that? They point to others like us as Christians who do not practice what they preach. So what do we do? So we notice that Paul addresses those people that claim to be Jews, but not genuinely Jews. Like I said, the term Jew originally denoted an inhabitant of Judah, an area settled by the descendants of Judah, one of the 12 sons of Isaac. But after the Babylonian captivity, the term Jew came to describe the entire commonwealth of Israel. In other words, all 12 tribes. So by the time Paul wrote his letter to the churches in Rome, the word had come to describe all of the descendants of Abraham through Isaac. It was a term That was used, as we have seen in Romans, to distinguish the Jews from the Gentiles. Now, those who were calling themselves Jews were claiming that they had some special uh, privilege because of their heritage. We know these individuals as well. Well, I'm a Christian because uh, mom and dad were members of a church for a, a number of years. So I'm going to go ahead and piggyback off of that and claim that I'm a Christian too because they were. Those who were calling themselves Jews were claiming that they had special privilege because of their heritage. It's no different today as it was then. They thought that because they had been born a Jew, they were automatically a descendant of Abraham and therefore part of God's chosen people. They were like the Jews who opposed Jesus and who declared in John chapter 8, verse 39, Abraham is our father. They were quick to claim, but they didn't back up that claim. And they assumed that because they had been born a Jew and therefore somehow exempt from God's judgment. This situation was really not much different at all from what we've seen in our culture today. We have a lot of people that call themselves Christians, and that number has consistently been around 75 to 80%. That's a high number. These Americans, according to the number of these polls, although it has been declining somewhat in recent years, but when these same pollsters begin to ask some additional questions it becomes apparent very quickly that the numbers of those who are actually the kind of justified doers of the law that we talked about last week are much, much lower. That indicates that we have a whole lot of people who call themselves Christians, but whose lives reveal that they are Christians in name only. Like the first century Jews that Paul is addressing in his letter, they are depending on their heritage or in some religious act for their security. Perhaps they were born into a Christian family or prayed the prayer or were baptized or uh, attended church on a regular basis or maybe even gave generously to their church. But as Paul... Made very clear here in chapter 2, none of those things make us justified before God. Most of us are probably familiar with Billy Sunday's words, which are right on point here. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you an automobile. The second thing where they seek security. Is in their knowledge. It's in their knowledge. Paul addresses this potential source of security in verses 17 and 18. There we find that the Jews to whom Paul is writing here knew a lot about God and his law. They relied on that law, they knew God's will, they approved that which was moral and excellent. All of that knowledge was a result of the fact that they had been instructed from the law. But the problem is that they still did not apply that knowledge. It didn't make it from their head to their heart. So therefore, what they did didn't match up with what they knew. It seemed that the Jews had the idea that because they had God's law and they knew it, that law would somehow magically protect them even if they didn't do what was contained therein. In other words, they were Christian by osmosis almost here. They didn't have to do anything. The law did not apply to them because it was already applied to them magically. Now, when I was coaching, I occasionally worked with other officials who kind of had that same... Mindset. They know the rule book inside and out, supposedly. Now, we know how referees can get things wrong. We know how our way seems to be the better way other than theirs, and we let them know it. But they get the highest score on the rules test, and they make sure that everyone else knows that. In other words, they they almost like they play God. And if you get on their bad side... They're going to let you know it. But when they get on the playing surface or pool deck or whatever the sport is, they refuse to do the hard work that is required in order to take that knowledge that they know and apply it when the match or the game starts. It is no different in our Christian lives. We know what the word says. God lays it out for us. But we take God's playbook and we toss it out the window. This doesn't apply to me here. I'm going to do it my way. My way seems to work. I love God. I know God. And he claims to love me, so why do I need this? Unfortunately, we have a lot of people like that in churches today. A large number of those who call themselves Christians, and they've been deceived into thinking that their maturity as a follower of Jesus is based on how much they know. These people can quote chapter and verse. They are capable of winning every theological argument. They always have an answer for every question that comes up. But what they fail to grasp is that the goal of understanding God's word is not to impress others or to win arguments. The purpose of developing knowledge is to bring glory to God through our obedience. In verse 17, Paul writes that these people boast in God. Now that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? But if you put this in context, what Paul seems to be saying is that these people are boasting that they know God better than the pagan Gentiles to whom they are comparing themselves to. It's a comparison game here for them. So even in their boasting in God is not done for the purpose of honoring Him or giving glory to God, but rather to make themselves look better. Have you ever embellished a story? So that it sounded better? Or that you were trying to impress somebody? Men, when you were first dating your significant other, did you say things that you thought would impress them? Maybe if it wasn't entirely true? The Jews were trying to one-up the Gentiles here. And what's worse, they were using God to do it. But they were no better than the Gentiles. God clearly states that, and we talked about that too last week. There is no partiality here. And God is trying to make them aware of it. And Paul is writing to them to let them know of this. We certainly see that kind of attitude operating in our culture today, don't we? The other thing they try to find security in is in their words. In verses 19 and 20, Paul changes course a little bit here. Now he's focusing on what these Jews do with all of this knowledge that they have accumulated. Seems to me if you've acquired some knowledge, the sensible thing would be to apply it. The sensible thing would be to share it with somebody. Am I right? That's what you do with it. Now, most of us are probably familiar with the proverb that was first coined by George Bernhard Shaw. Those who can, do. Those who can't, teach. And actually, I like Woody Allen's version a little better. Those you know who Woody Allen is, some of you are too young to know. I was probably too young to know, but I was exposed <laughs> to him. He says, as the son-in-law of an excellent teacher, or I'm sorry, I'm, I'm jumping ahead there. Those who can't do, teach. And those who can't teach, teach Jim. Kind of funny, I don't know. But as for me, as the son-in-law of an excellent teacher, I can testify firsthand that this proverb is certainly not universally true. But it sure seemed to be true for these Jews. Actually, in their case, it would be a little more accurate to modify the proverb like this. Those who will, do. Those who won't, teach. These Jews actually were arrogant enough to think that even though they weren't applying God's word in their own lives, that they were qualified to teach his law to the Gentiles, who they considered to be blind, in darkness, foolish, and immature. There are a couple of really sobering verses for me as a pastor and they are an appropriate reminder of why I pray two things as I prepare a message every week first I pray that all God all that God would reveal in anything in the passage that I need to apply to my own life and that he would help me to be obedient to what he shows me in other words I don't want to be a person that doesn't practice what they preach. It's a disservice to you. It is a disservice to me. But more importantly, it's a disservice to God. Secondly, I pray that once I've made appropriate application of God's word in my own life, that he would guide me to preach the message that he desires not what I desire, but what He desires for all of us to hear as a body and help all of us to apply it. I don't want to be up here and speak at you and convict you and do all these things if it's just going to go in one ear and out the other. We need to apply these things. I need to apply these things. I know that Sometimes some of you might feel like I'm preaching at you. Well, guess what? You're not here, so I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching towards you. You can laugh now. But let me tell you this. I can assure you that I never approach a message with the idea that some other person or group of people really need to hear this message. Do you want to know why I prepare what I prepare? It's because I'm hoping and I'm praying that it'll teach me first. As much as you get out of a sermon or someone teaching a Bible study... The primary focus should be even the teacher or the pastor or the person leading a particular ministry. That particular thing should be ministering to them. Because again, we don't want to be people that don't practice what they preach. But I'm sure that sometimes God does want to speak to you through our messages so that it certainly might feel like maybe this sermon is aimed directly at you. Our jobs, as pastors, is to convict you. And then we comfort. We afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. It's a two-way street. And when God puts us in those situations... It is imperative that we have already read and studied God's word for the purpose of first applying it to our own lives and obeying it before we seek to teach it to others. We need to know what we're doing because we have the responsibility to teach you. If I'm not learning anything, how am I going to expect you to learn something? The gospel is actually more like a boomerang than an arrow. If you aim it at someone else with the idea that you want to hit them where they need to change, it often turns around and comes right back at you. Secondly, this morning, seeking security by making God's word a basis for boasting instead of a base of blessing. We see clearly here that the Jews had a lot of pride. They were using the fact that they had God's law to try and elevate themselves to a place of superiority over the Gentiles. They completely missed out on the fact that they were going all the way back to Genesis 12 when God blessed Abram. God chose Israel that they would be a blessing to all the other nations of the world not so that they could condemn them. This is also true of the body of Christ, the church. It is real easy for us to become proud of what we have in Jesus and look down on others who do not have that. But how can we be proud of being saved solely by the grace of God? How can we be proud of being chosen by God on only the basis of His mercy? How can we be proud of the fact that we have a relationship with God... Only because of the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ and not of anything that we have done. Apparently, the problem was not isolated to churches in Rome. In writing to the church in Corinth, Paul had to deal with a dispute in the church about eating meat offered to idols. And, in, and some in the church, most likely Jewish believers, were using what they considered to be their superior knowledge to condemn those who were acting in a way that was contrary to what they considered to be right. But Paul, seeing right through the surface to the underlying heart problem, wrote these words to them. Now concerning food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. Rather than using what they knew to bless others, those Paul addressed here were using that knowledge as a way to make the case that they were somehow superior to the others who didn't possess that same knowledge. So Paul got right to their heart issue here. And the fact that their desire was to puff up themselves and not love others. God has blessed us with his word. Not so that we can use it to exalt ourselves, but rather so that we can use it in a way that brings blessings to others. Jesus never called on his followers to beat others over the head with the Bible so that they can feel better about themselves. But he has called us to speak the truth in love, which means using his word in a way that blesses and not burdens Others, Paul answers that question in verses 23 and 24, where he gives us two reasons. First, it mocks God. When our walk is not consistent with our talk, it first of all dishonors God. And while as we have seen frequently, it is certainly true that when we live in obedience to God... We experience blessing. We've had a number of individuals who were sick. But we've also had a number of individuals praying feverishly for these individuals. And we have seen blessing, we have seen it firsthand. We've seen some miraculous things. And all honor goes to God. So it is certainly true that when we live in obedience to God, we experience blessing. That should never be our primary motivation for obeying Him, though. As Paul points out in verse 23... The primary reason we should desire to live in obedience to God is that it brings honor to Him. And when we don't, it mocks and dishonors Him. It's important for us to remember that whenever we violate God's law, our sin is against God, first of all. When David wrote Psalm 51... After repenting of his sin with Bathsheba, he included these words. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Obviously, our sin often harms other people as well. But it always, always, always dishonors God. So when we boast in the law by calling attention to ourselves and how much we know and then we fail to do what God says, we are mocking God in a way that is far more damaging than any disrespect that comes from outside the body of Christ. Secondly, it blocks others from coming to God. In verse 24, Paul quotes from Isaiah 52, 5. Now, therefore, what I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Here, the prophet Isaiah is describing how in the past, because of their disobedience, the nation of Israel Had been taken into captivity, first by Egypt, then the ten northern tribes by Assyria, and finally the two southern tribes of Babylon. In each case here, they had occurred, or or this had occurred because the people had chosen to disobey God. And in each case, the result was that God's name was despised. When the nations around them looked at Israel's predicament, they consistently drew the wrong conclusions about Israel's God, assuming him to be either unloving or powerless, or even both. From their perspective, they could see that God was disciplining his people because he loved them, and so they were blocked from seeing God as he really is and coming to him. Now, unfortunately... We see this principle in operation more than ever in our culture today. When those who claim to be Christians live in a way that contradicts what they say they believe, they become the single biggest hindrance to the advancement of the gospel. That's the number one thing. Hypocrisy. Talking without walking leads to mocking and blocking. Since, as we have seen clearly this morning, this is a true statement. So then it seems appropriate for us to close by discussing briefly how to help make sure my walk matches my talk. I'm going to leave you with two applications this morning. One that focuses on your relationship with God and one that focuses on your relationship with others. First, we need to read and study the Bible for the purpose of personal application. We all know that we need to be in God's Word and we need to be in that Word on a consistent basis. But how I approach that time is probably just as important as how often I do it. I need to be meeting with God in his word and in prayer, not to check off an item on my daily to-do list, but rather to engage with God on a heart level. I need to come before him in order to expose every area of my life to the light of his word. I need to confess my sin, my struggles, and I need to seek His strength. And as I read and study and meditate on the Bible, I should always approach His Word with a mindset that continually asks, How does this apply to me? I need to ask God how He wants me to live in light of what I'm learning. I need to memorize passages to help me live obediently in areas where I struggle. I need to ask God to help me moment by moment so that I live in a manner that is consistent in his word. But we don't always get that right. Sometimes we tail off but God welcomes us back. No matter where we are or where we've been, he welcomes us back. We need to cultivate honesty and humility towards others. We need to quit trying to impress others with how much we know or how godly we are. We need to be willing to be honest and transparent with others and be willing to admit that We don't have all the answers. But we serve a God who does. We need to do this both within and outside of this church. Within the body, we can ask others to pray for us. Especially in those areas of our lives where we struggle to live in obedience to God. We can ask our Christian brothers and sisters to help us with that as well. God has placed all of us in a church family like this because he doesn't intend for us to try to live a life of obedience on our own because it is impossible for us to do so. But God lends his hand, he takes us along, and he puts us in places that we need to be. He puts people in our lives that need to be there to help us. In other words, God's saying, quit, get off your soapbox and join the crowd. We need to help one another. God has placed it there for us. Why not take advantage of it? But see, in order for us to do that, it requires a degree of transparency on our part. We have to be open, and frankly, most of us are unwilling to exercise that. But if we are going to make sure we don't become those yeah but Christians, we must. And as we deal with those outside of the body, we must be especially humble. We must guard against putting on a facade that portrays that we have it all together. We do not have it all together. But we have a God that can certainly put us in the right direction. In fact, as most of you probably know, the word hypocrite comes from a Greek word that described an actor who was pretending to be someone else. The problem with doing that as a follower of Christ is that eventually others will see through that mask... And we'll end up doing great damage to the gospel of Christ. We need to be as open and honest as we possibly can, especially with unbelievers, and let them know that being a Christian doesn't mean we're perfect. It just means that we have a God who has forgiven us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world has far too many yeah but Christians who don't walk in a way that's consistent with their talk and unfortunately they do more to mock God and block others from coming to him than the unbelieving world around us. That's a sobering thought. We do more to mock God and block others from coming to him than the world that surrounds us. That's a sad statement. Let's make sure that we do everything that we can to keep from entering those ranks. God has provided us opportunity. God has provided us a fellowship of believers together that we can help one another. And this should be an effort that is with everybody involved, not just leadership making decisions. This needs to be something that we all can come together and be in accordance according to the scripture. We need to take the knowledge that we have acquired and we need to spread that knowledge. We need to help others, not for our personal gain, but for God's gain alone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could come before you this morning. And offer ourselves as a sacrifice to you. Thank you for our time together. That we can delve into your word. And understand what it means to be a true follower of Christ. Lord, we want to protect ourselves from being labeled as the yeah but Christians. But Lord, we can't do that by ourselves. but we're privileged and we're honored that you love us so much that you've provided opportunity for us to get that help and that we have a place to recharge our batteries so that we too can go out and help others. Lord, we thank you for our blessings and let us not take for granted that you love us and that you take care of us and that you hear our prayers. I'm especially grateful that you hear our prayers. Lord, we don't deserve anything we ask for, but you give it unconditionally. Lord, if we could only be a fraction of that example to others, We love you. We give you this service this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org o-r-g